0: In the 1800s, Billy Knowles's ancestors homesteaded near Isla Mirada, Florida. A pineapple farm and exportation was their first trade. Surrounded by the Gulf Stream and the backcountry flats, fishing became the lifeblood for many of their offspring. Knowles eventually became known as the mayor to many Isla Mirada guides. To this day, 80 years young, Knowles continues to fulfill his life on the water. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything, we broke lines, we broke hooks, we broke rods, we broke our minds, we broke marriages, we broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way so I double lunged him both ways.
1: But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're gonna teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet.
0: And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out. Thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride.
1: <laughs> There's something fishy going on here.
0: Billy, it, um, I think I can speak on everybody that knows you. That you, we all hold you in such high regard, in so many ways. Not only as wow. a great friend, a great fishing guide, possibly the mayor of what we stand for, as far as the fishing capital of the world, especially the flats fishing world. Um. You know, you're 80 years old. You've you're been right. you've been around. I have. Um, I guess the first question might be. You've called everybody "son" forever, forever, right, son?
1: <laughs> well, where did that come from? Cecil Keith always called me "son." He was a great buddy, and he was the one that literally taught me tarp and fly. And uh, but he he called almost everybody "son," and I guess I got that from him.
0: Did it start right away, or did it become that? Trade of yours at a certain age, because as a young man you can't you can't call everybody son.
1: Well, I did anyway. You did, yeah. If even if they were older than me, you know, I call. I've called since I've known you. I always called you son.
0: Well, I'm a lot younger than you, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's almost too a term of
1: endearment. Well.
0: You know, I mean, because you call your friend son, you wouldn't call somebody you don't know son. No,
1: no, no, no. Right. No, they have to be close to me. Right. You know, I, there's a lot of guides I wouldn't call son. You know, they're, I know them, I don't know them well. You you gotta remember, Annie, when I started, there were 12 guides in Alamarada. When did you start? 1959.
0: Just before Hurricane Donna.
1: Right, and And I went right back after the storm was over. I lost my boat, I lost everything. And uh, then I had a new boat built and everything. And it was maybe 61, uh, George Hommel called me. And he says, I got a man here that wants to go fishing. I said, okay, when does he want to go? He says, he wants to go this afternoon. I said, fine. So I go down and get the boat, get ready, and here comes Carl Navray.
0: The, probably the most important acquaintance, friend.
1: Oh, he was great. It you know. came into your life. And he said to me, I want to go see what it's all about. I said, fine, let's go. We went in the back and we caught some little tarpons on plug and, and stuff like that. And he said, uh, do they get any bigger? I says, oh, yeah son, son. <laughs> he said well they eat a fly i said oh yeah so the next day he says i want to go tomorrow too they, they, but they were all little fish right then so the next day we went we took a fly rod and we caught a couple on fly and he says you got any more days open in june when their big ones are here i said oh yeah he says i want them all he said matter of fact don't book anymore. He said, you work for me now. And I worked for him for thirteen years. Exclusively. Well we chartered out too, but right. I, I worked for him. If he said I'm coming, I had to be there.
0: And then did, did was he the owner of the Chica at that time or did he buy the Chica Lodge after?
1: No, he bought the Chica Lodge after we uh no, he owned it right then. He bought it after I went to work for him, but he did uh, buy it shortly thereafter. Because I remember I used to ride my horse up and tie it to a coconut tree and go in and have a drink. Ride your horse
0: yeah, I had, up and tied to a coconut tree and go in. Yeah,
1: my mate and I, I had horses in the Almorada. And uh, my wife was in the horse business. And so, what was the population of Isla Morada at that time? Oh golly, Andy, I I would say maybe maybe year-round residents fifteen hundred to two thousand, maybe. It's
0: interesting in the fact that that number is almost the same as Aspen when my family moved to Aspen in nineteen sixty. It was around twelve hundred. Right.
1: Yeah, and you you've been there ever since, right? Right. Well, that's why I was. When I was looking for this place, I was looking on the other side of the bridge, and that's where our family owned all of that, on the other side of the bridge. Um, we didn't didn't own Whale Harbor. Uh, that was owned by Buck Stark's family. But we owned from there all the way down. Where did your family get the money to buy the real estate? They didn't buy it. They homesteaded it? Yeah. Our family's been on the island since 1853. Wow! Yeah. And uh, and where'd they come from? The Bahamas, from Green Turtle Key and Cat Island across to Key West and then up the Keys.
0: And how much land did they homestead
1: back then? They homesteaded half a plantation key, all of Windley all of Winley Key, which is this key, Alamarada, and most of Lower Mattockumby, but that was all pineapples. That's all it was, was a pineapple farm. And, uh, my great grandfather, I guess he was the pineapple guru. Cause they, most everybody worked for him. And then they, he had like 12 big sailing ships and they, he would get on the first one. They sailed all this fruit to Mobile, Alabama. He'd go over on the first one, come back on the last one. And, uh, that's how, and then it started, people started jumping in and claiming it and stuff, which was okay. Right. You know, we didn't have to own everything. Everything. We right. owned most of Almarada. Wow. And uh like my grandmother, when she was in her 80s, she looked at me one day and she says, son, we give it away. Now everybody's selling it for a ton. And this was in... Uh, She died in the middle 60s. And she was born here. Wow. And my father was born here. I was born in Miami, three days later I was here. You know, and I've been here ever since. How does it look to you now? Terrible. Yeah. Too many people, too many boats, too many, you know, it doesn't make any difference if you try to be careful, Andy, out there now because somebody's going to see you with these new machines. They're going to pop a number off of you, and they're going to be sitting in your spot the next day.
0: Right. Even the traffic here, I noticed uh, in the last six years or so, it's during a weekend, like on a Sunday, it's Tripple. a traffic jam from here to Boca. Right. That's true. It's insane. You can't even cross the road. No. How do you deal with it? Well. I mean, obviously you still fish, and that's a great testament to your passion for fishing. And to the
1: Well, I try to uh, get up early, early in the morning, get my boat, put it in the water, and then at the end of the day, I'm usually one of the last boats out, and I'll go put my boat up, you know. And I go home, and I don't go out again. I don't even go out to dinner. Right. It's too many people. Right. And that's basically how I deal with it. Mm-hmm. So
0: I was speaking with Timmy Carlisle and uh he's seventy two, I think he, it is, and he said if I couldn't fish I'd die. He hasn't left uh, the, he hasn't been to Miami in eighteen
1: years. Well how about you? I've been oh I go through Miami yeah. right. o- often, but I don't stop. Yeah. But uh like, Timmy hadn't been up this way in a lot of years. I've I've only been to Key West 12 times in my life. Is that right? That's right. And that's
0: it's such great fishing down there. You just had such good fishing here, you didn't have to go didn't anywhere.
1: Didn't have to go, and Steve was down there, and Bobby Montgomery, and, you know, I love Steve to death. But that's his area. Right. I, I don't know it like that. You're talking do. about Huff? Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. What, who... So you've been—I mean—I feel like I've been down here for thirty-five years, and you were—you are the mayor,
1: you were the commissioner.
0: Who was that guy before you?
1: Well, I would say probably Cecil, Cecil Jimmy Albright, Cecil and Jimmy. They, Jimmy taught Cecil. Okay, and uh, you got to remember, we did all kinds of fishing. We're just not, just didn't do the backcountry. Right, because you were mating. Offshore when
0: you're a, a, a teenager. A when I teenager. was in
1: high school, yeah, I made it on a charter boat every weekend and holiday, and then I'd spend the summers in Southport, North Carolina, mating on that same boat. Wow! And uh, then I knew how I knew I really wanted to do both always, because the, that boat that I was mating on, I we had a Client on a Saturday, and uh, I think I was about 14 years old. And I went down and I woke up the Captain. He'd been out drinking all night. I said, come on, people are on the boat. They're ready to go. I'll be there in a couple of minutes. Okay. So I go back to the boat and I tell him, he'll be here in a couple of minutes. He don't show up. I go back again and wake him up again. I'll be there shortly. I go back, I waited about 10 minutes, I undid the strings, and off I went. At 14 years old by myself with a party, I'm not even supposed to touch that boat, (laughs) so. You were a natural. We went out there, we caught three sailfish and a bunch of big groupers and snappers and stuff came back in. They were all lined up on the dock waiting to see if I was gonna get back alive. Put the boat back in the slip, no problem. And I said, "This is my cup of tea, boys. This is what I'm going to do." Good for you. And I did it. I've been doing it ever since.
0: Was there a a difficult decision to stay? You know, to make that choice whether to stay as an offshore captain or like a an inshore
1: flats guy? No, and I did both always. Right. Because I love both. I fish the sailfish seasons, and uh, but you got to remember, I ran. Corporate boats after Carl. I ran his boat, and then I ran boats after that. I, w- I worked for Spartan Food System, and after that I worked for Owen Manufacturing. And I ran their boats for them, and all we did was sailfish. And when that was over, I was done. I was back in the back. So and Or I would go to the Bahamas and blue marlin fish. And even as a skiff guide, I found myself in Point Judith, Rhode Island, giant tuna fishing, which I giant tuna fished in the islands over here. And uh, then Carl and I went to Costa, Rica, I went to Ecuador, striped marlin fishing with fly rod, and just things like that. That was that's what I live for. What a life of fishing you've had! Oh. I really don't know of anybody that's had a better one. You know, I did a lot of traveling. I fished the Arctic on both sides. um, the, The North Atlantic and up in North Alaska. And up and down South America on the Pacific side. Chasing billfish. Yeah. That was it.
0: It was... So rewarding and so right that you were inducted into the captains and crew, hall,
1: IGFA captains and crew hall of fame. Well, I deeply appreciated that and I was not expecting it, but I thought that was great. You know,
0: you know, what's awesome too about that is that you're inducted and selected
1: by your peers. Yeah. That was uh that was true. I can't say too much for the guy that introduced me. I love him. <laughs> Do you you remember what he said? Skip? No. Or who oh Ed. He says, the only thing he told me that I couldn't say was calling me an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, that is what it is. But uh yeah, he's been fishing with me for 30 years. And uh, the longest one I guess I have is Bo Davis. His father started Piedmont Airline. I've been fishing Bo for forty-seven years. And uh, you still fishing him? Oh yeah, fishes every June. Every May or June, whichever is good.
0: I mean, I just think it's just awesome. You're eighty years old, and you go out there in a little flat skiff and push it around.
1: Well, and you're on
0: the water looking for fish, and it's just. What was it like when you were in Bimini seeing these big big tuna coming across the white sand? I mean that's a that's a game fish that's gone away. It is. It it really has. I mean for over there anyway.
1: Yeah. It uh when you you you're up in the tower and you're looking down the white sand and you see that black glob coming at you. It just does things to you. How big are those are those tuna? Biggest I ever seen over there was uh Seven eighty-seven. How deep is the water? That fish was hooked in uh, probably fourteen feet. Unbelievable! But you got to watch them going over the edge. You got to try to keep them from going over the edge. Uh, Otherwise,
0: they, they 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 break your line. They cut your line. No, I mean, not hooked, necessarily. They just go into the deep water, and you can't find them.
1: Well, you got to crank them up. You got to beat them down and get them up. We were sitting there one day and on the boats after a day's fishing. And um, this guy that the Greeks worked for came up and he said, Well, I just caught my five hundred tuna. And old man Lerner was sitting on the boat with us. And he rolled his head over his shoulder and he said, Shit, Sonny, I quit counting at a thousand. And old man Lerner was Michael Lerner, who started the IJFA. That's right. And he said he he was a great guy. He was. I was, you know, really privileged to meet him. And uh, he was a good friend of the captain I was working for. But he, you know, those those boys there, they were serious. They were dead serious. Lerner and. Uh, um, JoJo Del Garcio and all of those boys. They were serious. They spent just literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars chasing them things. And would they
0: chase them also as they as they
1: moved north? No. Or no. would they just chase them in the Bahamas? I was I think well, there were other boats up there. I had uh a couple of friends running boats out of uh, Point Judith when I was there. I just went for one tournament. They flew me up there for the fishing tournament and flew me back. And uh, it was pretty interesting to see the way they fish them. They anchor. They chum. It's just like you see on uh, that wacky tuna show that's on right now. Mm -hmm. It's the same. That's the way they fish them up there. They chunk them, pull them to the back of the boat,
0: and then put a hook in a piece of chunk. Right. And and uh, so you would have these hunt these 500 pound tuna in the near your boat in 14 feet of water feeding out of your hand, yeah.
1: That's why the uh, the little Merritt boat and the little Ryvovich boats were so great, they didn't throw a big wake, you had to get them to cross the wake and get in behind the boat. What you do is you, you see a school coming down the bank, and you'd get up ahead of them and then slide over, and you watch. Watch them cross into the, the prop wash, then you bait them.
0: And what were you baiting them with?
1: Well, you could bait them with big black mullet, mackerel, all that kind of stuff.
0: I can't even imagine how large the bucket was. You were throwing the the chum out of.
1: We weren't. We never chummed. See, just to fi- they just fire them a bait.
0: Oh, you didn't have to chum Well, I thought you were you were you were chunking and chumming them up.
1: And that was up north. Okay.
0: But a, in, the, in the Bahamas, you were just feeding them, you know, one bait.
1: Right. That was it. That bait never went down. That bait would—I've seen them coming down the bank, and you could see uh, there'd be maybe three fish across in the front and usually a great big one in the middle, in the middle of the front three. And you would try to get bait him if you could. But usually the little guys, the 400, 500 pounders, would beat him to it. The big guy was in the middle. It would be eight, maybe nine. I never seen one that big caught over there. But uh, I don't know whether you remember him or not, but Warren Kendall. Kendall Oil Company? I don't. He he had a rivage called the It's Me 8. And he hooked a fish there one day, and the fish took off and Warren weighed about 280 pounds, and his ass was that high
0: out of the chair. And How uh, much drag is on that reel?
1: We always set it at 65 pounds over the tip, and that's a lot of drag. Right. You know, but you didn't have to use it all mostly, but it, if you needed it, yeah. you got it. And
0: you're all harnessed in.
1: Yeah, and uh, we had we had our rods, fastened with a clip to around the stanchion of the fighting chair with a rope on it so if he did get out of the uh socket you know it's not going to go too far right
0: i think one of the craziest pieces of video i've ever seen was Stuart campbell getting ripped out of a out of his boat all right over the back yeah over in madeira all right i think they were fishing i think 20 or 30 pound world record stuff and here's a thousand pound fish and the mate wires this fish he's hanging on to this grander and the slack wraps around the rod but you got 400 pound leader or or higher and that's wrapped around the rod and the 30 pound test is in the reel so when he let go of that fish that 400 pound was wrapped around the, that rod and nothing could break. And Stuart's doing stand up, And all of a sudden Stuart just disappeared. Shot right out. He Yeah, he always fished damn. And then, and then the 400 ripped the guides off the rod and then the 30 was exposed and the 30 broke. And that's what saved his life. But that piece of video is like, oh my God. Uh, I had met him when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I... I spoke to him, when he hit that gunnel, I thought he might have broken both of his femurs. And the only thing he broke, he dislocated his wrist, he said. Uh, and that's the only thing that, you know, the, in, yeah. the injury that was, he was sustained.
1: But that's a dangerous sport. Well, over up off of Bimini, one day, this guy hooked a big tune up there. And they got him up in this Bahamian warranty. And he was taking wraps on his hand, and the glove got pinched up, and it went over, and he couldn't shake it off. Right, He went over the side. They never seen him again. Straight down. Do you think that would be a good way to go? If you got to go, that would be a <laughs> good way to go.
0: That would be, It'd a be good an way. exciting ride, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, hell yeah. You'd see what's down there. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, we've we've spoken with a bunch of people over this last year about gaffing tarpon and getting yanked out of the boat. Has that happened to you?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's not... I. Oh, believe it or not, an 86-pound fish pulled my butt overboard in Billy Pate's boat. He had so much stuff there that you had to be careful that you didn't run one of those steel rods up in your stomach or something if you did get wow. pulled over. But uh, actually, he pulled and I jumped because I didn't want to hit one of them rods. Right. And I he took me all the way to the bottom at Channel 2. And he came up jumping. And I swam to the boat. And I give Billy the gaff handle. And I said, pull him up, but keep him away from me.
0: You said, didn't want the tip of the gaff getting close to you.
1: It did. went right up in in my hand and he he pulled it and that was I said that's it no more with you boy number one the boat was dangerous you you fired him I fired him right there you fired me too (laughs) yeah but you didn't no you you were just too young for me (laughs) You were well, you were speedy. We'll talk about that a little bit
0: later. <laughs> Billy Pate obviously is one of the great the great names in tarpon fly fishing. He I mean he held the uh the hundred and eighty eight pound world record for twenty five years, I think it was, but he had the books. I don't know, yeah, he had the videos, you know, fighting giant tarpon, but he was a big promoter of the game. What was what was Billy like
1: as a fisherman? Well do you
0: fish with him very much?
1: Uh no, I fished with him as just, little as possible. Yeah, because I didn't like what he was doing. What was he
0: doing that was just well? Baseball? He
1: came to me and he says, "What do you think about raising the 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 uh, tippet
0: to two feet?" That's a shock tippet. Yeah, from twelve inches to two feet. To
1: two feet and and putting in a thirty pound class. I said Billy, and throwing out the ten pound class. I said Billy, so many people have fished for that ten pound. I said, I'm not for it. I said, I'll vote against it if anybody asks me. Right, And uh, I, just things like that were not right. They, were, they weren't right to you. Supposing you had a six-pound world record, and he wanted to change that. Well, that's going to throw all the six-pound fish yeah, out. Yeah,
0: history has changed. You can't do that. No. Well, let's go back to home of Sasa, because yeah, um, you were over there, I think, with Carl,
1: right? No. Who would you fish with over there? I I went the first year in 71 with Jimmy Lopez. Okay. And uh, the first morning out, we were the first boat out down the river. And uh, we got down to Chesawiska, just before Chesawiska Point. I mean, uh, Tripod. And he said, maybe there's a few right here. Let's stop and look. And I shut down. And we were in his boat, no electrics strictly pole and I'm standing on the back of the boat pushing around a little bit and I see a fish roll I said Jimmy hurry up there's a fish roll right in front of us there might be more with him and uh, he starts shaking and I said hurry up hurry up I said five or six fish just rolled and he's still shaking I said Jimmy forget it he said why I said because there's more damn fish than I can count so He says, you're serious? I said, yeah, it's a big daisy chain. And when the sun came up, we were not outside of the daisy chain throwing in. We were on the inside throwing out. Oh, wow. That's how big the school was. And he says, how many fish do you think here? I said, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000. I have no idea. But we, that day, we caught seven. And... I wouldn't even say how many we jumped, but we did catch seven. We were there for 10 days. On the 10th day, we ended up catching 77 fish in 10 days. Wow. And on the 10th day, we never caught a fish. We hooked a fish in the morning, about seven o'clock, and we fought that fish till a little after 12. This fish was way plus two. And he says, we got to get a shot with the gaff. We got to get it. I said, no, you don't. You fight the fish. Let me worry about the gaff. So not having electric, I had to pull outside of the fish, get upwind of him so that the wind would blow me down on him. And I pulled outside of the fish, laid the pole down real quiet, picked up the gaff. Fish turned around and blew the fly right back in his face. Mm. He was got so mad, he threw the fly rod and reel down in the boat, bent the fly, all to hell, the reel, uh, threw the motor down, cracked it up, and we came in. And I said, boy, you're a, you're a real sport, aren't you? And he says to me, bring the boat back to Almorada. He says, I'm flying home now. He had his airplane over there. Whatever you want. And that, that was my last year with him. And he did the same thing to Eddie Whiteman. He told Eddie's wife, he says, tell Eddie I'm c- canceling out till the weather gets bad and not better and I'll be back. And the weather was beautiful. And he canceled out. He had a girlfriend he wanted to go see for a week. And that was the way he was. And nobody had anything to do with him anymore. And he came back. He lost all his money. Came back, became a guide. Okay. Mm-hmm. And one day on the point, at first point of nine mile, he uh, Rob Rob comes up into the bite. Rob Fordays. Yeah, goes down into the bite, and Lopez is sitting in the white hole up on the bend. And he threw his motor down, and he screamed down there, and started yelling and screaming until he seen it was Rob. He says, oh, excuse me, Rob, I didn't know it was you. Rob says, you better figure it out real quick. <laughs> so he went back upside down. He didn't last long after that, he was gone. Tell me about some of the pocket wars,
0: you know, the, the Buchanan pocket, racing to the pocket in the dark.
1: That must have been really kind of some crazy times. Well, Carl and I had it down to a science. We had a 65-foot houseboat. Yeah, you just lived out there. We did. We'd anchor the boat right out in front of the pocket. We had a stick on the pocket. We'd sit there early in the morning about 4.30, and we'd watch for the lights coming. And we'd we'd go over and get in the pocket, and then somebody would flip the lights on on the houseboat. You could hear him coming. But they, the, they hated you guys. Oh, God, you sorry son of a bitch, you know. And uh, But that was not really a war. That was just because Carl wanted to get the pocket. Right. But uh, Jack Brothers and I had a war there one day. He was shooting a movie, uh, one of those films with uh, Daiwa. And I was in the pocket. And Jack comes in with two other boats and gets in front of me. I said what are you doing he said we're shooting a film get in line son and shoot your film i said i'm in the pocket oh no no i i, I gotta be ahead of the pocket i said okay so he's got all staked up and i pulled my stake up and i pulled up around him and got about 40 feet in front of him and the doctor i was fishing was pretty good and doc said what are we doing i says throw at him I said, the ones you can't reach, I can. They're not gonna get a shot. And I I did that. And Jack says, you're not gonna give us a shot? I says, yeah, I'll give you all the shots you want if you get behind the pocket. And he finally they moved down there and I moved back to the pocket. And the first school of fish come by, I said, Jack, here they come. I wasn't gonna, you know, hog them all. Sure. But you just couldn't explain that to some of the people, Jimmy. Jimmy and I got in an argument one morning. I was fishing. uh, You know him, you know of him, Lee Cuddy. Right. I was fishing Lee, and uh, we'd we'd caught a couple of fish, and the fish are really coming. And Mac Miller, which was like Lee's son, step, you know, adopted son. He was fishing with Hommel, and they were way up on the wheel ditch, which was legal to do. He hooks a great big old fish up there and goes out and fights him. They put him in the boat, and they think it's a world's record. And they go flying in, and Lee says, I want to go up there. I said, Lee, Jimmy's going to raise hell. He says, he's asleep. He was. He was laying on, his, on the seat, goes across the boat, sound asleep. <laughs> I get right up alongside of him, and he, "Where the hell are you going? Get back where you were." <laughs> yes, sir. I pulled on back where I was. <laughs> Cutty got mad. Uh, well, that's the way it is. But, but I,
0: you know, obviously they were in-home assassins seeking that the Holy Grail, the two-hundred-pound fish. But as important, all the other records that were set going up to that Holy Grail. Because right. Homo Sassa had such big fish. The average fish was just so big up there. They were.
1: Well, Nikki was fishing with Al Pfluger one day. And she's a pretty good fly fisherman.
0: Nikki's being your wife.
1: Yes. And she hooked a fish. And... Uh, she was fighting this fish and I seen the fish jump and I knew it was a good fish. It was a hundred, 150 plus. And uh, of course she couldn't have a world's record back then, you know, because it, it, she was fishing against the men. There was no women's world's record. Oh, okay. So she, they finally, they came by me and she says, am I pulling on this fish too hard? I said, honey, if you don't start pulling on it real hard, you're going to have to spend the night out there with Pfluger. <laughs> she says, I ain't doing that. <laughs> she leaned on that sucker, rolled him upside the boat. Fluger says, I, I never see anybody pull on a fish like that. And she did. She, but she did catch a fish over there that taped over 175. Wow. And, uh, you know, that tape was pretty accurate. Sure. And we taped, I taped three fish over there that were... A little over two. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Were you not fishing IGFA legal? Oh, yeah. How come they were not?
1: One of them was with that Bo Davis. Mm -hmm. He says, I don't want to kill that fish. Okay. And the other one was a doctor from Baltimore, and he says, Bill, I don't want to kill the fish. Did you want to kill it? No. If they didn't want to kill it, I didn't want to kill it. And then I caught one. Dana Murphy was in the boat with me, and Nikki was with us. And uh, Dana had just caught a fish about 140 pounds. And she says, I had enough. She says, I said, good, I can fish now. <laughs> so I got up on the bow and a big string come by, and I hooked a big old pig right out of the middle. You could see him, you know. You could pick your fish, Andy. Right. Back, in, You fished over there, didn't yeah, you?
0: Just briefly. It was already pretty much expired by the time I got there.
1: Well, you could just about pick your fish. When I started over there, there was maybe 12 boats. And then later on, Steve came, and uh, I forgot who else came, but they were. then they started coming. Right. My last year there, I was fishing with uh, Everett Ehrlich, and uh, Everett says, Bill, there's too many boats. Mm-hmm. I said, We caught a fish that morning, and I was on the platform. Just I was trying to count the boats around me. The boats I could see off and around me, there had to be sixty
0: boats. Right. My last year there, I fished. I think three or four. My last year, I think it was in eighty-eight. I counted sixty-three. You know, obviously, whatever's there is just going to be ping-ponging off of each other. You know. Uh were you one of the first guys to fish the cape here in the um in Florida Bay?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, the, a lot of the boys wouldn't go that far. But I started going over there and how did you find that? 61. I was going over there snook fishing. I was by myself. I was going over there snook fishing. I see all these daisy chains everywhere. And I said, "Okay." And I go back and I forgot who went with me, but one of the other boys went with me, and we had a field day. You know, we'd jump them, pop them off. Didn't even fight them, just right. just jumping them. And uh, it was just, it was wild. The, the Bernie and I, the day we caught the thirteen, and Craig and there was five or six other boats right around us. He and I caught thirteen one day. I caught seven. He caught six. And out of the thirteen, I would say, probably, I would say probably eight or nine of them were triple-digit fish. Wow! They're all good fish. All good fish. Yeah. We get back to the dock, and somebody came up. A woman came up behind me, and she says. How many did you catch today? Ten. I said no. You didn't catch ten. I said no. Caught thirteen. She started to say you lying, Craig says, lady. There were six boats around them watching them, <laughs> and we couldn't do nothing, and they were flying them through the air everywhere. And uh, but we were using Leroy, right? You know,
0: a big black fly. Big black fly. I think I think maybe the first or second time I fished the Cape was with you yeah but we Long were a time ago.
1: We were fishingstrung fishes stringing out that, right. And then the wind came up that day when you hooked that fish right on the beach. That was amazing. i I never seen anybody do that before, or since. Oh, you know it was so much fun. It was
0: fun. It was rough as hell. Fish are tailing and sliding. We're catching fish, and you fired me. <laughs> you remember what you told me yeah. at the end of the day? Yeah. I don't I really fish with Billy Knowles <laughs> these couple of days. We get back to the dock, and he fired me.
1: I said, son, you're too young, and I'm too damn old. <laughs> <laughs> it,
0: was, yeah. it, was, it was fast and furious, our relationship on the water. What, uh, what do you think the younger generation has lost? You know, everybody, all the guys back for so many years were Captain Billy, Captain Jim, Captain whomever. Yeah. But now, so you know, you see these guys. It's Jared Raskob and Dustin Huff and whomever it might be. But the captain term
1: has been kind of lost, hasn't it? A little bit. And that Dustin Huff is is not an excuse. Dustin Huff is for real. Oh, I know that. That kid is that good. If better
0: than his dad, possibly. Possibly. As good if not better. Right. But obviously he's the prince and his dad was king. Right. Um, but he has earned his wings. You know, he's won all these tournaments. Yep. He I've fished with Dustin for many years. One of my best friends. Yeah. But this but but he's not Captain Dustin Huff. You know, yeah. remember when Stu was fishing, with was Captain Stu and Captain Cecil and Captain Jimmy Albright. Right. They don't use that term captain. What else is lost, do you think, with the new generation?
1: Oh, the one thing that is really lost that really bothers me is the fact that they don't go do their homework anymore. They depend on looking at you or you or you anywhere, And seeing what you're doing, and then they're going to go try to do that,
0: relying off of that boat. Right. What they see.
1: It's not what, you know. It's not what they know. It's what you know that they're looking at.
0: You know, it's also the dynamics of that is when you were fishing in the early years, you could go anywhere. There were not that many boats around, and you can go fish your spot. And if somebody was there, you you could go to to your next spot. Right. And that was like. Wherever you look, there's somebody. So it's hard to it's hard to
1: find space and freedom. I went. I have a little spot up there on Plantation Key. That, uh, and you probably fished it on the shoreline up there where the old sailboat was anchored out there. Mm-hmm. And I go up there, and I got one man that just loves to fish that place. And uh, I go up there one day during one of the tournaments there's a boat maybe eight or nine hundred yards down the beach. And I pulled in there, and uh, we hooked a fish, and he jumped off. And the next thing I know, here's this boat running, and he runs right up to me, and he says, Hey, Bub, you cut me off. And Charlie looked at him and says, Sonny, his name ain't Bub. You better know who the hell you're talking to. He says, well, I make my living at this. I said, that's fine. So do I. He says, I'm here three months out of the year. I said, I'm here 12. I said, what's your problem, son? He said, you cut me off. I said, I didn't cut you off. I said, I'm a thousand yards ahead of you. I said, and that's cutting you off? I said, come on over here in the backcountry, and I'll show you how to cut somebody off. And... uh well, he got he kind of got hostile, and you know, Bart, the boy Bart that mm-hmm. fishes with uh, one of the boys, he fishes with Perry Coleman. Right. We come in, and this guy is uh, they've everybody's heard about it. Dustin, they, they're all sitting there, and I pull into my boat, getting ready to pull my boat out on the trailer, and uh, but. Dust, I mean, uh, Bart's sitting on the gunnel of uh, Perry's boat on the ramp, and he looked at me and he said, Captain Bill." I said, "Yes, sir. What do you need? You want me to go over and beat the hell out of this guy?" I said, "Yeah, go ahead, Bart." <laughs> so he jumps off side of the boat, goes over to the club. Next thing I know, here comes this guy. He says, "We've got to have a talk." I said, "No, we don't have a talk." I said. Why don't you put your boat on the happy little trailer and go back to your happy little Louisiana where you're from and don't come back? It's as simple as that, mister. He says, are you for real? I said, yeah, this is my country, not yours. And that's what, that's what I'm against. All of these boats coming from everywhere else and crowded out for guys like you, that's has here all your life practicing. And I'm not for that.
0: Yeah, I understand. Well, let's go to a happy place. <laughs> How do you feel about bonefish versus tarpon?
1: Well, I love bonefish.
0: More so than tarpon? No. But you're a hell of a bonefisherman. Well, You're a hell of a tarpon fisherman too. But um, you've won 11 poor boy tournaments. Right. That's a big number but you've also won five times uh, the fall all tackle with Pepe Lopez, and you've right. won uh, two spring all tackles. Right. That's a hell of a statement, because those are those are really high-end right. tournaments with the best fishermen in the world, catching the biggest fish in the world. Well, I think one one of these, didn't you win with a 15-pound fish?
1: Yeah, we had a 15-four one year. But uh, people, you gotta look at it this way, Andy myself, I didn't want to go catch little fish. I want to catch big fish. And that's what I lived for, was to go catch the big bone fish. And uh, Pepe was fishing with uh, Harry Snow Jr.
0: Right. Harry Snow taught him a lot about the lower keys.
1: Right. Harry, Harry was a great bone fisherman. But the way he, he couldn't fish these fish up here. You can't pull down on these fish and throw an anchor overboard and stop the boat. I stopped the boat with a pole. He would throw the anchor aboard, scare the hell out of the fish.
0: He was Pe- down in the lower keys fishing smaller, dumber fish.
1: Right. And so um Pepe came up to me and he says, if uh you ever get open, he says, I'd like to fish with you. I said, fine. I'd heard about his, he's a good fisherman. I'd heard about his reputation. I said, Pepe, you got to realize one thing. I only fish for big fish if I can help it." I said, I don't like to go on the shoreline and catch dinks. I like to catch big fish back here. what there's not that many big fish. I said, there's more big fish than you can count. So we were going one morning over to Nine Mile, pull around on Nine Mile a little bit. And Hank was running, but he was going to catch bait to go to the Cape. We both, it was so slick, you couldn't see the second point of nine mile. And we both ran up on it, and a school of fish blew off of his boat, ran straight to our boat, and we caught one of those fish. And those fish, I don't know how many we caught, maybe 20 that morning. Um, most of them were nine to 12 pounds. And we were back at the dock at 12 o'clock having lunch. Now that's bone fishing to right. me. That's good bone fishing. And uh, Hank's sitting there and he calls me on the, on the t- telephone. He says, what are you doing? I said, we're catching bone fish. Really? I don't want to catch none of them slimy things. You're talking uh, about Hank Brown. Yeah. He was not a good bone fisherman. And uh so we, we just caught a lot of bonefish over the years. And, um,
0: how did you like to catch them? What was your methodology?
1: I, we loved to jig fish for them, you know, throw the jig at them. And I loved to fly fish for them. I had a lot of fly fishermen. Carl, he was, he was a good fly fisherman for bonefish. We caught a lot of bonefish together. And, uh, we were, we were in, uh, of course, you, you know those fish over in the islands will eat a fly in a heartbeat. Right. And one morning, he and I and Tom Moore, were we got in a skiff, we were in, in Staniel Cay, And we went out to one of the big white flats up close to the island. We didn't see much. We put the anchor down, we get out, we start wading. The sti- tide starts to fall. And here they come out of the trees. Yeah, uh, the main group. Yeah. yeah. And we caught, Carl and I caught about 15 or 20 apiece on fly, and and he, the other guy I caught was using a spinning rod with a jig, and he caught the same amount. But- uh,
0: They're not the big ones we have here.
1: No, they're dinks. Yeah. Uh, how good
0: of a friend were you to Jim Brewer?
1: <laughs> Brewer and I were good buddies we really were in the boat we were bitter enemies i mean i tried out outfish him he tried out outfish me every time even if we were fishing the shakespeare corporation jim went with shakespeare and he got me in with ben hardesty and pfluger when they bought out pfluger tackle and i represented pfluger and jim represented shakespeare and whoever was in the boat with us, if we were fishing that group, it was blood. I mean, it was we're we're at war. And uh, he was a he was a good, great tarpon fisherman. He he didn't have a lot of patience with customers, with clients. And would his
0: uh, voice go up in tone periodically.
1: A voice and vocabulary
0: <laughs> for a lot of four-letter words. A
1: lot, but uh, he was, you know, he was a good tarpon fisherman, great tarpon fisherman. Right. And we were at Duck Key, and I was fishing Dana Murphy. We were fishing bait with light line. You know, we were fishing, we were trying to break the 6, 12, and 20 pound records. And, uh, which we did, we broke them all. And uh, Brewer goes out there and he puts flashlights on poles. And he goes out there before dark and turns them all on. Well, I go out there after he comes back just, just at dark, and I turn them all off. And he come out there and he was yelling and screaming and hollering and everything. He says, "I know you're out here, you." Son of a bitch. <laughs> I says, "Yeah, I'm here." I said, "We just caught one. Well, you're in my channel." I don't see your name on it. He said, I had a light on it. I said, you don't have one on it anymore. (laughs) Oh, yeah, but we got along great. We we would fight in the boat, we'd come in and have a drink. That's the way it was. Right. How important
0: was the Gold Cup? I mean, it's important to all the anglers today, for sure. It's still the biggest tarpon tournament in the world. Was it bigger back in the day with, I mean, with the Calcuttas, if you win, I think you win around $18,000 now.
1: Yeah, they weren't that big then, but, but they but it was important, right? Oh yeah, that that the reason that tournament started was old man Holly and uh Ted and a few of the other ones, Ted Williams. Yeah. They all got together and said, "We got to do something to generate some business for these boys in the summer."
0: Because everybody would leave after the month of May. Right. you got to get the sports back into town.
1: To fish. To fish. And so they set the, set the limit at 25. And the first year, women could fish it, spinning rods and fly rods, either one. And uh, you know Joan Salveda. Yes. Joan fished it, and I fished. Linnet. So that's
0: Joan Wolf in right. her earlier
1: years. Right. Really? And I fished Lynette Simons she fished spinning that was pete simon's wife and he fished with jake muller i think but anyway um ralph my cousin fished bart Foth, and uh bart was probably he was the guru he had the first record and all of that on fly he had 130. it's interesting because i don't know that name that well oh he was He had more records than anybody on fly at one time. What was his name again? Bart Foth. Huh. He was, I forgot where he was from, but Jimmy fished him, Cecil fished him, I fished him, Ralph fished him, and and, uh, he'd fish for Clarence every now and then. And because he couldn't, Clarence Clarence had a, he was a great guide, but he had a problem of getting drunk at night sometimes.
0: And that's Clarence, was his name? Clarence Lowe. Lowe, okay.
1: Yeah, he was a cousin. And, uh, But he was a good fisherman. If he was straight, he was good. And Bart just wouldn't take, you know, didn't want to take right. any. If he's ready to go, he's ready to go. He didn't want to be sitting there waiting. One morning, he lived in Penn Key Club, along with a lot of these other people. One morning we're sitting, I'm sitting there out by the skiff, where we were going in his skiff. It was slick calm. And then he walked down, had a handful of bonefish rods. And he looked at me and he says, What he called me Billy the Kid. He says, What are you looking at? Look how calm it is. What are you thinking about? He, he says, I said to him, I said, well, what do you think I'm bringing? I'll take these rods back and get the tarpon rods. <laughs> he said, but I'm going to tell you right now, this is the last day I'll ever tarpon fish. He says, I I love to bone fish, and I'm not going to tarpon fish anymore. I said, okay. But he would all tie a ton of fly tarpon flies for Jimmy, Cecil, me, Ralph, and uh, he would t- just tie our flies. We went over to, to uh, Man of War, and Cecil was in there with, uh, I don't know whether you, D- Dick Bartlett, did mm-hmm. you ever hear that? Right. Bartlett was good. And I pulled in there, and Bart looked at me, he says, what color fly you want, sir? I says, I don't care what it is, just so it's a yellow and red stream, a, a split wing. He says, okay. So he tied one on and threw it the first chain, nothing. Second chain, nothing. drifted back in. He says, okay, I'm going to tie one on there. They're going to eat. Tied a red and yellow streamer on there. First school of fish we hooked up. We caught the fish, put the fish in the boat. He says, I want to mount this fish. This is it. I'm going to mount it for the club. I said, okay. We put the fish in the boat. And Barton and Cecil come over there. Our Dick and Cecil came over there and they licked the fish and says, won't make a hundred. Yeah, he will. No, he won't. So, okay, we'll we'll bet you a quarter of uh, a quart of uh, one of those fancy high-priced liquors, and uh, we'll meet you at the dock. We get to the dock. I I caught one right after Bard did, and uh, that was the last day we went tarpon fishing. But here they were sitting there waiting on us to come in and hang this fish and weigh it. Fish weighed 103 pounds. <laughs> you drank all night. No they, on their nickel. I no, they did. I didn't. Uh
0: what was it like hanging a fish on a hook that was a potential world record? What kind of excitement was that for you guys?
1: Oh, it was great. It was uh
0: I can only imagine. I mean, I, I tried it once and the whole gaffing aspect and Running, you know, running to the dock, as uh, Tom Evans used to call it. Taking the boat, the we're going to take this fish for a boat ride. Right. Taking for a boat ride. You hang That's him up, and you're watching the, you know. And two, in the bonefish tournaments, you had the the canoe. Right. You put the bonefish in the canoe, and you'd watch, you know, the scale and the uh, the needle move. That's it. It's okay. real juice.
1: But that, you're talking about Evans when he and Huffer. Split company. Tom called me and he says, how would you like to fish 30 days with me? I said, Tom, I think the world of you. I said, but let's do this. I said, let's don't fish and remain friends.
0: (laughs) 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 Was that common that you'd fall out of friendship with, uh, with your anglers back in the day?
1: I never fell, out. the only ones I've ever fell out, fallen out with was the ones I kicked out of the boat. Right. Which was only one. That and was all Lopez. Of the years. No. well, Lopez, I wouldn't fish him. Right. And again, I, you know, I didn't kick him out of the boat. I just was not going to ever fish him again. Right. But I kicked one right out of the boat. Who was that? Uh, he was from Washington, D.C., Chris Heirich, whole Heirich beer company. He had a, he married a girl from Key Largo and had, she had a son and he was about 11 or 12 years old. And he took him with us one day. We went and caught some, wanted to go catch some snappers. And we're out there fishing and he's yelling and screaming at this kid all day long, all morning long. Right. And uh, I said, reel him up boys. We're going to go to another spot. And I was, like at Peterson or something. I cranked up and I went back to the dock. I said, Chris, get your ass out of my boat and you'll never get in it again. I said, there is no excuse for you picking on a child like that at all. Right. And uh, because you look at my track record, I love fishing with kids. They're the people that are going to be fishing in the years to come. Right. You know, I I've got a lot of little guys. I could. and not only that, when you teach a kid to fish,
0: and to see the excitement in their eyes. Oh yeah. And that and that relationship with that fish, that might change his life. That first fish, and and so many people that we've spoken about. What was it that made you a fisherman? And they said the first fish I caught, and it might have been a little perch or a bass or right. whatever but the rod gets tightened. and now they're connected with this animal That's it. through, a, through a, a piece of string. And the rest is history.
1: That's true. That's just like the guy that, that I fish a lot now in tarpon season. His name is Charlie Bradshaw. I worked for his father. That was Spartan Food System. I ran their big boat for him for five or six years. And I got Charlie when he was kinda of little. I'm still fishing Charlie today. That's awesome. And he's got three daughters and they don't fish. So they he brought them down and I sent them out with Randy, uh, two of the daughters and a son-in-law and a little guy. Now they're all hooked, yeah. which is good. It's great.
0: What kind of, um, when Jim Brewer died in the airplane crash looking for tarpon, was it the day before the Gold Cup or a couple of days before the Gold Cup, they were in the back circling looking for fish? They were
1: looking for fish, yeah, he and Hagley. What kind of uh,
0: aura, what kind of, I don't even know the proper word to use, but what kind, I mean, it still resonates today. I mean, it was such a big piece of history of, of the tarpon tournament, the passion to catch these fish, the passion to win this tournament. Right. guys. Go up in an airplane. They're looking for fish to fish for the next day. They end up crashing and dying. And then Craig, you know, became a great guide. And Jim Brewer won the Gold Cup in 1974. And then, and then Crager in 2010, 36 years later, he wins the Gold Cup. I just love that story.
1: That's great. Yeah, I I never won the Gold Cup. I won the Holly the first year it was ever won. And. Uh, but I never won a Gold Cup. Came in second three or four times, but never won it. Yeah. And I'm sure you've probably seen the photo of the three of us Ralph and Clarence and myself. Three cousins. We wiped out the whole thing one year. First, I, second, and third. Ralph had the most releases. We had the biggest fish and runner up to Grand Champion. Clarence was Grand Champion. We lost it by five points. And uh but that's the way it was, you know, and that that was a great year. Yeah, no kidding. So all three whole cousins. Family.
0: What um looking back at your life, what are you most proud of?
1: Surviving. <laughs>
0: Enduring. Enduring.
1: <laughs> oh.
0: I mean you've met so much to so many people and I think Randy Tao, you know, he's been like a, a, a son. For you, yeah. and he's been like a, a father figure to him. Maybe Krager a little bit. Crager. maybe maybe uh, Robert Klein. You know, you got so many good friends. Yeah, you know, a, a younger generation that looked up to you. So,
1: they're all great boys. They're you know they're all great fishermen. And uh, a lot of people don't appreciate the way Randy fishes. Randy fishes the way Randy wants to fish. Right. And uh, he doesn't bother anybody. And uh, I fish the way I want to fish, but they those boys there. I don't. I never say anything to them. You know, I tried to help Randy when he first came to the Keys, and of course, a Brewer grew up with me, and uh, I was kind of, you know, thought the world of him after his father got killed. If I told him if there's anything he ever needed, call me. And uh, of course, he's too hard-headed to do that, but. He's a good boy. Yeah. Well, you're a good man. But, uh,
0: and we all love you.
1: Well, I love all these guys and, and all the anglers, you know. And like I told somebody one day, I said, I've got some good anglers. I've got some anglers that fished with me years ago. Not because they don't want to fish with me. It's because I outgrew them. Right. In age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's,
0: let's talk about one person before we wrap it up, Ted Williams. Obviously, the the great ball player that he was. You know, such a big figure in baseball and and in fishing too. He won the Gold Cup twice. Have you, did you ever fish with
1: Ted Williams? Yeah, I fished him a couple of times. Whoa. That was that was enough. What was that like? Oh, it was awesome. It, it was the main thing that we did with Ted Williams when Sears would put on a a movie you know do a a shoot there were like 10 or 12 guides in that thing uh with all of these different people the people that were writing his part because he couldn't make a talking movie because of his language you know and the uh,
0: profanity
1: oh yeah and so
0: i heard he he he, uh he cursed so well it it
1: was almost poetic it (laughs) He come walking out of the hardware store one day, and I was walking out of the lumber yard, and uh, he seen me across the street. And he yelled out, hey, Porky, big fucking deal. And I said, hey, Bush, there's two ladies standing right behind you. (laughs) And he he turned around and he looked up and the lady says, I've never heard such language. He says, don't you know who I am? I'm Ted Williams. I'm the worst cusser in the world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, that response that you made because you called everybody else Bush. Bush League, Ted would call him Bush. Yeah. So you called him Bush.
1: Well, we all called him Bush. Jimmy, Cecil. And that wasn't for Bush League. That was for bullshit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Billy, thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for having me, my boy. I just, I think you guys are doing a great thing. But well, thank you. I think you really are. And I think it's it's going to be a book one of these days. You watch.
0: Well, the most important thing is your story is not going to go away. People uh, in 50 years, they can get on the Internet and type in Billy Knowles Millhouse podcast and your story will be there. Well, so we're trying to pre- preserve history. And you your history is just so legendary that we're honored well, and privileged
1: to have you here. Well, it's Been my privilege to be here, especially with you and your son. You know, I—I've heard a lot about this young man that he's better than you are.
0: He is. That's hard to say. I'm proud of
1: it. Uh, Hard to say. (laughs) I don't know. You know, (laughs) he's good, but he's got to be really good to be better than you. Well, thank you. So. Well, thank you for. Okay, my boy. My
0: son. My
1: son? <laughs>
0: Billy, thank you so You're much. You're
1: welcome.
0: The fountain of youth comes in many forms. For Billy Knowles, it continues to be life on the water. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram. Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.